investing is a risky business and each has a different risk profile for different reasons. And it's like, I didn't want to add the currency risk on top of that. Because if the shit hits the fan and I'm stuck with euros or dollars, I can still use it somewhere. I can still fly to Europe or fly to the US and, and use it there, right? As opposed to any other not poor currency in the world. So that's sort of like my experience from that. You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. And when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing in commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview, dive deeper, and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20-year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, it's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation and I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies and you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations and these amazing passive wealth principle lessons. Welcome to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast Show. I'm your host, Jake Harris. I have today, I have Liton Yahav. He is coming to us from Israel, just outside Tel Aviv. He's got an interesting story about being into the diamond industry and disrupting that with a startup company, taking it full cycle, exiting out that, then transitioning from that exit, becoming a limited partner, investing passively into other people's investments. The less that he learned, investing into international development deals that were creating currency uh, hedges one way or the other, and maybe it not quite working it out. So dive in and listen for that interesting insights. But then it created new sets of problems. When you start investing passively into other people's investments, multiple times, it becomes very problematic to track this. And so his new startup is helping to solve that kind of via almost virtual family office footprint. So dive into it here, listen into this interesting and fascinating conversation with Liton Yahav. Litan Yahav. Yahav, did I say that right? You got it right. Perfect. Yeah. Yahav. Okay. So uh, you're joining me from Israel. Are you, Where actually are you in Israel? So I'm about 20 minutes north of Tel Aviv on a beach town. Israel is pretty small. So like in US standards, I'm probably a suburb of like LA, even like even not even just neighborhood. But in Israel, because it's such a small country, it's 20 minutes north of Tel Aviv. All right. That's awesome. No, that's, I mean, and I was excited about this call, especially because of your experiences investing 
you know, your backstory, you know, investing in a startups in the diamond industry, you've invested into as an LP into real estate deals internationally. And so I just, I, I felt like your breadth of understanding and also you've kind of evolved over time, you know, from the startup world into managing your own investments and now into what we'll dive into later, kind of, I hope that we get to it is kind of your, your philosophy on financial independence or passive income or those other components that, that many things are maybe cliche as there's that the, the world is talking about. So in the meantime, I'd like to start with kind of like your background, how, you know, where'd you come from? How'd you get to be an investor? And then, uh, you know, to walk us through that story. I'd love to hear uh, for the audience and then as well as personally. For sure. Well, first of all, I really, I mean, I'm super excited to be on the podcast. You're doing an amazing job. So excited to be here and happy to share my story. Uh, so a little background. Um, I'm 40 years old, married three kids. I was born in the States uh, in Los Angeles. We were on a trip around the world and somehow ended up in Israel and been here ever since. I was nine years old when we moved here. And the Israeli sort of culture is that when you finish high school, you go to the military. And so I was in the Navy for six years. And then after that, I went to school, studied lawn business while working as a sailing instructor. And then sort of my final year of studies here, I was part of this entrepreneurship program called the Zell, the Sam Zell Entrepreneurship Program, part of one of the schools here in Israel. And sort of that's where I founded, I co-founded my last startup about 12 years ago uh, with my current co-founder as well, Tomer, which was a, a crazy process of sort of building a team and then finding an idea. To, like, or an issue or a problem you want to solve and then build a whole solution for that problem and build a startup around it. And we found ourselves walking around a very old-fashioned industry called the diamond industry. And Israel used to be like a huge center of diamond commerce um, out of the five in the world. And so when you walk into this old-fashioned building, super high security and everything like that, and you walk in, you see people walking around the hallway, the hallways with suitcases packed with diamonds. And signs on a wall, on, on doors saying, I'm looking to buy this and this type of diamond. I'm looking to sell this and this. Like you're, holy shit, the 21st century and people are like trading diamonds like you're in the 50s. And like, there has to be some innovation to implement here. And so um, we set out to build our last startup about 12 years ago with a premise to create a solution for photographing and displaying diamonds in very high resolution 3D imagery. So you can then trade them online, like a very B2B type business where Diamond traders can then trade diamonds between each other around the world without us physically shipping them. And so that, that went pretty well. We founded that back in 2012 and scaled it to become the standard for diamond imagery around the world. We were really lucky and had an amazing team and exited the company back in 2015. At that point, we were basically processing, photographing almost all the diamonds in the world in five locations and the main diamond exchanges. And we were acquired by a U.S. company a very large e-commerce website that sells diamond engagement rings online. Anyway, long story short, we sold that back in 2015, stayed on for a few more years. And in 2018, me and my co-founder decided to move on. Now, this exit was, was great for us. We didn't make tens of millions of dollars, but we made enough money you know, to take a minute, decide what we want to do next, travel the world, and just ideate, manage our money. And during that time, obviously, you know, there's a lot of PR that goes around when you sell a company. And then you get bombarded by phone calls and emails from these like wealth managers and financial advisors. And why don't we help you manage your money? And there's these, these types of products. And we're like, well, I mean, 
let's try to do it on our own. And if we won't manage, we'll reach out. And so we decided to sort of like allocate our money on our own. And the cool thing about Israel is that from a retirement standpoint, like 401k equivalent is mandatory in Israel. You don't have a choice as an employee. So the feeling here is that you're set in terms of retirement. And so any excess cash you have, you're going to go and deploy it. And because I'm an entrepreneur, like my risk tolerance is pretty high. Everyone here does real estate abroad. And so we found some friends or friends of friends that did like real estate deals, real estate syndications and stuff like that. These funds, private equity in the US and Europe. And we started to meet with and then start to sort of deploy cash, 50,000 here, 100,000 there, and started sort of to, to learn the ropes of LP investing in these types of syndications. And, um, and so that sort of like started in 2015. And so, you know, the vetting of these people was more like, all right, he's a friend of mine or a good friend of a good friend. He's not going to screw me over. Then what's left for us to sort of like look into is sort of, all right, do the numbers match my strategy? Like, all right, does this generate cash flow? If it does, what's like the, my expectations from an IRR perspective, from a cash flow perspective? And then sort of like simultaneously, we also, we also invested. So there was this also a company that sort of sold like wholesale for, for single family homes in the US. And we bought a few of them. Worst, worst deal of our, like of our investment life was doing that. And at that point, we understood like sort of, and we'll talk about this maybe later, there are different levels of like passive income, right? You, you own a single family home and you might have a property management company to manage it, but dude, it was a nightmare. And, and like we were bombarded with like issues and, and bad tenants. It was just, it was just, we only got rid of them like a year ago. And since then we said, we're not going to invest anymore in any single door properties, only multi-door. We're going to find people we can trust and take it from there. And so that's what we've been doing for the past seven years. And so like about two, two and a half years ago, we reached a situation where we had a bunch of money deployed various investment products with different fund managers, different GPs, multiple bank accounts. Our Excels became crazy and just became really hard. These are good problems to have, right? Don't get me wrong, but we wanted to like, it was still a problem for us. We said, screw it. Let's just build this. We're in tech. Let's find an engineer and build, build a solution for our issues. And while doing so, a bunch of friends and family wanted it as well. And we're like, wait, hold on a second. There might be a business here. And so that, that's sort of like what, what led us into like what we're building now, but that's a different story. So that's sort of like a little background about, about me and in my investments and happy to dive into any aspect of that you think would be interesting. Yeah. So uh, first I want to go back to your sailing instructor. <laughs> uh, so what kind of sailing were you out there with like a little dinghy? Are you like a yacht guy kind of from the Navy days? Uh, is that how you translated into sailing instructor? But talk to me about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So I was in Navy for six years. I was a Naval officer, went to the Navy Academy and was a commander in a warship. And, and a lot of things, like one of the most common Things you do after your discharge from the Navy is you go work in something that has to do with the sea, right? And so, yeah, so I was a skipper instructor on, instructor on, on, uh, on yachts, sort of most of the world. I know the U.S. Isn't, isn't the same, but most of the world, you need to have a skipper license to sail um, a boat up to 75 feet. And then above 75, there's different types of licenses. And so that's what I did. So I taught people how to sail on on boats, both the theoretical side of it and the practical side of it. And so, yeah, so that's sort of the sailing days. The funny thing is like, you know, when you do that, we also used to sort of like charter boats. So people would rent boats and we take them out to sea and 
It's like one of those things where you're, it's your job to sail and then people come on the boat and say, well, holy shit, this is an amazing job. But when you do it every day, it's like, all right, it's like when you have a pool, right? you don't really use it that much. But yeah, so that, that's what my sailing days look like. I still do. We still sail every year. We go out on a sailing trip, a bunch of founders, like a group of like 30 founders and, and, and go sail together in Europe, which is pretty cool. That's awesome. It took me, and the reason I asked is I, like, I had this little <laughs> side tangent is when Greece uh, was experiencing a lot of their financial strain, there was a whole lot of, uh, you know, yachts uh, and, and, you know, motor yachts kind of things like that, that were just being offloaded on the cheap, cheap. And so that was like, man, I think you could go acquire these kind of like people are doing RVs now and almost like Airbnb you know, yachts, if you could get a slip and, and, you know, it started and it was pretty high level as far as for my research, you know, but exactly what you said, like, oh, you need certain licenses, you need all these other things. And then it's like, uh, I don't know if I want to actually deal with that. And then, you know, currency exchange and a bunch of other things. But I think it was probably a good thesis at the time. It probably would have made sense. You probably, you know, now that the whole world has printed a bunch of money, you know, I probably could have sold those for four times that what you picked them up for. But again, uh, not knowing what I did uh, or how to buy a yacht or anything like that. I just didn't do it other than the, that high level. It's a lot harder to flip a yacht also because the maintenance, the ongoing maintenance cost of these boats is insane, like 10, 20% annual maintenance fees. And you don't even know what you're getting. So it's, uh, I think, I think you made this, it, it, it was, you're lucky you didn't get into that regardless of it could, if it could have been a good investment. Well, and I, I think so. We were having a little bit of a conversation before uh, we started recording. Is I think FOMO is a very entrepreneurial kind of trait. Is that you're kind of always looking at, oh, they're doing this rad thing over here, and look at that, and you know, diamonds and yachts, and you know, X, Y, and Z, and VC investing and LP investing, and so I think that'll kind of maybe come out in this conversation as a whole. But before we get into that, I, I wanted to kind of dive into like the diamond industry. Like I see this happening over and over and over again, and it doesn't seem like it's you know revolutionary at the time. But it was like talk me through like your getting into the diamond industry, and then at least the way you've explained it to me before, it was just like. It was like caveman. It was like, you know, wild, wild west of trading diamonds, millions, billions. I don't know how many, you know, the, the market share of trading diamonds, but it was just super rudimentary. And then, uh, you know, maybe you can dive in a little bit more why and how you grew that company. And then what just kind of taught you to, to developing your next kind of startup. Right. So the diamond industry is a whole conversation on its own, right? And it's, it's a crazy industry all the way from the diamond mining companies, the syndications, like the beers and and similar types of companies that sort of like are sitting on this faucet of diamonds, which essentially is huge, but because they want to control the supply and increase prices, they don't release diamonds to the market. And that creates a whole issue downstream. And so that when you look at the trade itself of diamonds, I'd say as the years, like 50 years ago, diamond trade was all about how good you're able to sell because it was all emotional. And then many technologies sort of evolved in the field of sort of like gemological technologies to sort of understand their imperfections and colors of diamonds. And then the, the certificates, the GIA certificate in sorts. And then companies like us came in and also added that sort of ability to sort of really capture the beauty imperfections of a diamond presented online in a manner where you don't need to go through middlemen as much as you used to. You can just buy it directly from the source 
And so as, as the years move forward, there's a lot more transparency. And obviously that created a situation where many people sort of didn't have work anymore because they depended on this sort of ambiguity of sort of diamonds, right? I mean, if I can sell it to you, then you're going to buy it regardless if it's a good or bad one. But now you can't. And so those guys don't have work anymore. And I'd say about 10 years ago, diamonds used to transfer five hands on average before reaching like from the source to the end consumer. And I think now it went down to like two or three or even less. Like manufacturers, not not many people know this, but 90 or 80 or 90% of the diamonds in the world are polished and manufactured in India. So they'll, they'll come out of the mines in South Africa, in Russia and Canada, and they'll reach probably India just because the government there has sort of like has a lot of incentives financing wise and, and, and similar. And then that created a huge diamond trade in India. And so that was sort of the main source. And then people from all around the world would fly to India from the US, from, from China, from Canada, from everywhere, everywhere to look at these diamonds like under a loop, like this magnifying glass and decide which to buy and which not to buy, which didn't make any sense for us when we saw that that's really happening. And so like we said, well, why don't I, why, why can't we just like capture it with a really high resolution uh, hardware and then create an image that you can trade without physically shipping the diamond. And we were really naive because we don't have it. Like me and my co-founder don't have a technical background. We, we found a third co-founder who's a, a tech genius and we built a machine basically that you put a diamond in and it photographs it from many different angles and creates this really high resolution 3D image. Then then you can trade the diamond without physically shipping it. And it was really educating a market that was really old fashioned and getting them used to sending our images instead of shipping the diamonds around the world. So that was a, a huge challenge, but we we're really lucky to, to pull through on that. That's super interesting. So is that something like you were able to like patent this imagery technology or like, you know, did you get some kind of certification is like, you know, Litan says it's cool. It's fine. And now we can trade off of this image or like, how does that process work of the company? So we had a patent, but the patent basically is worthless. What we did really have was this ability to, because it's a B2B business that's based on relationships. So if I'm a diamond manufacturer in India and I have a, a retail store in the US that buys diamonds from me, if we manage to photograph, like my company managed to photograph diamonds for that Indian manufacturer, even for free at the beginning, and then that Indian manufacturer gets a link to these images of his diamonds, and he'll just send a link of that image to the, US, to the store in the US. And there's a small watermark on that image saying powered by Sigoma, which is the name of our company. And the retailer sees it and says, holy shit, this is amazing. I don't need to fly to India. I can just buy it based on this. The next time the Indian wants to sell him a diamond, that retailer is going to ask for an image of Sigoma. So it's sort of like creating the demand from, from, from bottom up. And, and very quickly, I mean, like three years after we founded the company, we were acquired already by one of the largest e-commerce websites. And then it created it, it create a situation where it was sort of like a one-stop shop. If you photograph your diamond with us in Hong Kong, the next day, that diamond is already for sale on an e-commerce website, one of the largest in the world, so that people can then buy directly from you. And so that just like that just knocked off any competition on the markets. So it's like this huge and amazing synergy between both companies, us and an e-commerce website, which still uses our tech. That's that's really interesting, and I feel like. I maybe utilized some of this uh, technology when I was buying my wife uh, engagement ring and, uh, you know, years ago. So I want to say that was 20, 
2014, 2015, 2015 time period, you know, maybe when I, was, I bought the, the engagement, because I went direct to the thing and it was like radically cheaper than had I gone through a traditional retail. And I was just like, again, I was like, this seems pretty good. Like I'm getting a nice size and I checked the images and I got a chance to look at some of the, you know, uh, elements and I, you know, picked a unique kind of stone. And, and so, yeah, it, it probably would have cost many, many times more, two, three, four X or whatever it is, uh, as far as you realize the middlemen, the middlemen were probably not happy about this, um, that you just cut them out of uh, the, the space. Was there any kind of pushback? I, I know that the diamond industry has been a little bit old fashioned and, and controlled by organized crime or cartels or, you know, whatever you want to call it, because you can move so much money in a, a sack of diamonds versus, you know, uh, trying to carry around gold bricks. Yeah, I think, I think that there were, there were many processes that, that were implemented over the past decade, I'd say, that were intended to create a lot of transparency and get rid of the crime involved in diamond shipping. And there's this whole treaty called the Kimberly process, which is basically this, this, this agreement that all these diamond mining companies signed, or m- most of them, which is to prevent blood diamond trade. And so from the moment a diamond leaves the ground, it's basically sort of tracked through these Kimberly certificate. And so that's like one thing that happened. And then the other types of certificate, the, the more like the, the uh, gemological ones, which are like the GIA type certificates, that already creates even more providence when it comes to sort of the trade of the polished diamond. And so it, it doesn't happen as much as it used to. And then with companies like us, we're like, we were in the same trend of that. And so the pushback wasn't from that type of, of aspect. Pushback was more well, of like, no one's going to buy a diamond based on an image. Like we had, we had people tell us at the beginning, like, no, I want to smell the diamond. And I'm like, what the hell does a diamond smell like? And how are you going to like, or I'm missing the life in the diamond. I don't see the life. And I, how do you even duplicate that? But our timing was, and this is again, there's always luck involved, right? But we were exactly in that place and time where it's a very family-run business, these diamond companies. And their kids, which are moving into sort of like the more higher levels positions of managing these companies, they were born with iPhones in their hands. Like they want tech. They don't want to fly around the world. They, they want to, I mean, maybe sometimes they do, but most of the time they don't. And so like, why not adopt these like this like cutting edge technology that will enable them to streamline their business? And so it's like classically one of those things, being in the right place at the right time, learning how like understanding to sort of take, like seize this opportunity and, and it went well. Yeah, no, I, I just find that incredibly fascinating because it's like very few people, you know, have, uh, and maybe like you said, naivety of just not knowing what to do or how to do it. And you just, so you just did it taking action in that place. And so I'd like to kind of take this now to some of the elements of, you know, starting to be an LP investor or limited partner in syndication or investing into, you know, other people, real estate, or maybe you invested into other businesses. So like now talk me like, you know, uh, Leton 2.0, you know, you've done a startup, you've exited. Now you have some money. It's not like the amount of money that you're going to hand it off to the wealth managers of the world to manage for you. So you're young, you're 32, 33 kind of time period. So it's like, what? What does that process look for you? And, you know, how did you start evolving as like kind of a passive investor? Right. So like most of these wealth managers, what their main offering is, we'll, like, we'll sort of allocate it 
based on like stock bond, some sort of like percentage here and there, and that would for less for maybe some mutual funds, maybe maybe some sort of like feeders into the larger tier one private equity firms. We're like, well, that's boring. Like, I don't want to do that. Uh, all right. I mean, I'm set to have a retirement. I'm going to put some money maybe in, in these sort of like brokerage accounts that I can leverage because at that point we sort of started to understand, well, leveraging is the way to sort of, all right, we have this wealth, but how do we create more of it? And shit, like you can leverage money at almost nothing in terms of terms like interest rates. Like why doesn't everyone do that? And so we just started to leverage the hell out of wherever we could at this like these cheap rates, like 1%. It's like 1% balloon seven-year payments. I thought, that's like, wow, why doesn't everyone do this? And so we started to leverage money and invest more than like more and more. And looking at sort of at the landscape, where can we invest? All right, so we're exposed to the startup world enough and we're not exposed enough to real estate. Like, I mean, I have a tiny, tiny position in real estate here in Israel, but I wanted to sort of diversify it in, in other places around the world, mainly in the US. And so, and it was, it was a lot a lot of it was dependent on the people we knew, right? Because all right, we started to meet with people who recommend to be with more people and more people and more people in our circles. And, and that's when we started to sort of like get introduced to real estate investing as an LP. Whereas we understood, well, there's, there's this person that I can trust that's not going to screw me over. That's been doing this for years. And they, they go and they find these deals. They finance it and they raise money from people like us. They distribute cash ongoing. And then there's an exit, there's a potential exit four or five, six years down the road with a potential reaching like 16, 17, 18% IRR. That's like, whoa, that's amazing. Um, let's try it. And so we ended up, and uh, like I said, we also invested in some some single family homes through that and, and learned a lot during that process of things that we liked and what we didn't like. And I can dive into that as well, but sort of like, that's when we sort of, so we did that in, in the States, in Europe, across different countries, mainly real estate, private equity, and some directly owned real estate. Yeah. And, and I, I think just for maybe for the audience sake, because a lot of people that are in our type of world understand what you're kind of talking about, investing into a syndication or be as, as an LP, a limited partner. You said, you know, uh, we run as a GP, a general partner, a sponsor of a deal, uh, exactly what you just said. So, hey, we're doing this $30 million property and we're going to bring, you know, uh, eight, you know, $10 million, let's say $10 million worth of investor capital. We're investing into it, but also we're going to go bring $9 million of our friends money or high net worth individuals that have 50, $100,000, you know, check sizes. And then collectively we're going to, you know, coalesce all of those. And then we're going to buy a bigger type of deal. And so the general concept is that you're diversified. You're, you know, in a bigger deal, you know, you're not buying that hundred thousand dollars and you're buying a hundred thousand dollar house. There's more. And then it, it may be back to even your sailing kind of advice. There's someone that's kind of holding the wheel. That's a little bit steady and allows you as a limited partner to kind of do and focus on other things. And so I wanted to pull back to is that, you know, like you're leveraging stuff at 1%, you're leveraging at with balloons. So talk me through that, like your first start, like you now have some money, you've never been a passive investor, you've been the, the jockey, so to speak, of running and building your own company. Now, all of a sudden you have some money and you're looking at, okay, we're going to potentially invest into other people's deals. 
And when you say that leveraging, let's maybe start with that. How did you discover that? What does that look like from a perspective? You have some money and, and talk me through that. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the same all around the world, right? There are institutions where you deposit funds into those institutions. These can be institutions where you invest in stocks or bonds. These can be institutions that you just give them money to manage actively from you or any types of institute, institution, private banks or even regular banks. Whereas if you invest money with them, one of the benefits is they'll give you money back or they'll give you a line of credit, which is sort of, and they use your investment as a collateral. And because of that, you can get really amazing terms. And then sort of, let's say you have a million dollars or you have a hundred thousand dollars even, you can put it into one of these vehicles and then the hundred thousand is working, right? It's invested even in the stock market, but then you'll get $70,000 at 1% annual interest rate, which is basically free money. And so essentially you're having, you have from 100,000, you have $170,000, which you can then invest or the 70,000 you can invest and you have 170,000 invested. And, and that basically exponentially grows your wealth faster. Obviously there are risks involved, right? In, in doing that, like right now we're seeing interest rates go up and stuff like that, but, but overall it's still very, very cheap stuff, especially the balloon side of it means basically that you get the 70,000 and for seven years or whatever the, the, the term is, for seven years, you just pay the interest. So let's say if it's 1%, you just pay $700 a year. And then after seven years, you have to return the principal. You have to return the 70,000. So that's like, that's the leveraging part. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. And that's a fantastic illustration. And I'm glad that you, you kind of went there exactly what understanding you have wealth. You could just take $100,000 and invest $100,000. You know, you got a million dollars, invest a million dollars into a real estate deal, pay cash for it. Very low returns. You're making a million dollars. You buy a property for a million dollars versus like, oh, we're going to put million dollars into a managed account kind of thing. Like you said, stocks. And then you're using the asset, asset-based line of credit to say, well, we want to borrow against that. So your million dollars is still making some returns going up with the equity markets or the stock market or whatever. The risk would be, you know, the stock goes down, you get margin called, it's down below that 30% of what you owe. And so then the, the banks call or the, the lenders be like, oh, hey, by the way, <laughs> you owe us more money because this, we got called. It depends on your loan structure and the time period. But now you're making a return on your million dollars, but now you also have that $700,000 or $70,000 of additional money that you can deploy into something else. And so you did that to start out. Then you start investing into some people that you're like, Hey, I trust them at least from that. They're not going to screw me over. So then like, what are some of the deals that you went into investment criteria? Did you establish a thesis? Did you just say, Hey, I'm going to just randomly throw it out here. Europe, Poland sounds like a great place. You know, it's a nice area. I had a drink there once and it was fun. Um, I dated a Polish girl, you know, <laughs> at some time in, in high school, you know, or whatever your, your investment thesis was. And then obviously I think also, you know, dive into your investment into single family, buying it from a wholesale and kind of a single purpose door, because I think that is, there's a little bit of a bifurcation of that of two different ways or two different paths in which you could actively be an investor into some of these right. other so, deals. Like I said, we started to meet which is friends of ours who do real estate and then abroad and then they're with friends of theirs. And then we decided just to jump in the water and 
found this this sort of company here in Israel that does it in, in the States. They do point they were doing single family homes in in sort of a greater Cleveland area in Ohio. And um, at that point, they did like I th- I'd say I think they bought like 400, 400 single family homes for investors in Israel. And so we bought we bought a few of those. And I think that was sort of the first time we learned like the risk involved in owning a single door. And then down the road, when they came to us with another deal, which is a multi, like a multifamily value add type deal, which basically means, hey, they found an opportunity to buy a, a larger complex of doors that has a single owner, which is this company that operates it. And they wanted to buy it from them with the potential to renovate it, value add to it, and then flip it moving forward. And then we can be a small partner in that deal. And then we're like, wait, we just put 100,000 into a single family home, but I can also put 100,000 into a multifamily that has 200 doors. So I don't have the risk of a door being empty because there are 200 of them. And I don't have to deal with talking with plumbers and property management firms because that's they're going to do that. And I'm fine with them taking a cut. And like you said before, yeah, so they were the general partner of this deal and we're the limited partners in the deal. They manage all the day-to-day stuff, talk with all the people. We don't have to do anything. And obviously, there's, it comes with the price. The price is that they get a larger cut of the profits, but the potential of it is so high that for me, and this is where the passive active comes into play, I think. For me, that means I can be 100% active, uh, passive, and not do anything, just give them my money. I don't need to do anything. The deal themselves, like the, you, act up, you, you asked about geographies. Like I, we didn't, personally, I didn't care where it was. I didn't look. I mean, it doesn't matter. Over the past seven years, I've never seen a property that I've purchased. Never. Like I don't, they send me pictures. I don't really care because all I care about is that I trust this person that's not going to screw me over and that the business plan makes sense. And what that means for me is that that sort of, all right, the time period, the expected sort of distributions, what happens in these and these scenarios. And as we move forward, we learn stuff that we needed to ask with new and new GPs that we didn't ask with the first ones. I'm saying a lot of stuff here. Like just, we can, we can talk about this for hours, right? But like, that's what no, yeah. And that's, I think to, to, you know, I think you went through the natural progression of people that are starting to invest, like they invest in a single family. Cause it's like, Oh, it seems pretty easy. I can just do a hundred thousand dollars into a hundred thousand dollar house. Look, it's easy, but the risk is, you know, one, there's a lot of competition, but it's like, it's a lot of work. And then there's versus a hundred thousand into a 200 door, you know, or, you know, property like, wow, that's actually way better. Seems less risky to me to invest into bigger deals, you know, with the same amount of money. And then obviously, I think this is maybe kind of leading to, as you're starting to make multiple investments, some of these are coming full cycle. Things you invest in 2015 and 2018 are kind of coming due. So now you have money coming back. And then I, I know what you're doing now with your your next startup in, in investments is tracking all of these things kind of sucks. So you reach out and Lethon and I, we have a conversation, you invest and I say, hey, we're going to do this X, Y, and Z, and we're going to make distributions quarterly. And it's going to be on this return expectation. And you go, Awesome. Here's money. You don't care where it is, you know, geographically, the business plan makes sense. But then it's like, well, what happens when you have one? It's pretty easy to track that. Two, three, five, 10, 50, 100. You know, now all of a sudden it's like, was that 12%? Was it 15%? You know, now do I got to get the documents? Like, 
what was I thinking at that time? Do I have an overarching, when's that money expected due? When was that three years? When did I put it in? What should I be expecting from a distribution? So now talk me through that as far as now your next series of problems that you've seen within the industry as being a passive investor of now managing your investments. Yeah, there, there are a lot of things that came up during that period. Even before I dive into like the tracking part of it, during that period, we also learned there's a term called refinance, like refi, right? So suddenly I get cash back from a deal that isn't exited, but my equity position went down. And then each operator has a different definition to what happens if there's a refi event. So let's say I put 100,000 in, and then a year later, they get better loan terms on that property. And so they'll, they'll take the loan and then they'll pay back some of their LPs. Uh, but then at that point, I get my distributions go down as to what I was expected to receive. And so then, and then, and then the tracking part comes in because when you have, like you said, five, 10, 15, 20 of these, it's like, all right, how much did I even put in? When, when did it happen? How much money was I supposed to receive? Especially when you have multiple bank accounts and cash going in, cash going out. It's like, it becomes harder to track and all that. And so, so just like moving forward, when, when I sort of like invest, I guess in like my third or fourth syndication deal, it's like, I started to ask different questions so I can plan and I can document like what I'm expected to receive from these deals, what's going to happen, what they think it's going to happen so that I'm better prepared. Because at one, one deal, it was like, suddenly I get cash in my bank from a deal that I wasn't expecting to receive. And again, good problems to have. It's like, what the hell? I don't want this money sitting in my account. I want it to be war- I want it to like, be allocated, deployed and making money. And now suddenly there was a refi that I wasn't even notified that it's going to happen. And suddenly there's money in my bank account. Now I have to scramble to find a different new opportunity to deploy this cash. And it's like, yeah, so that, that sort of led us to saying like, this doesn't make any sense. I had two options, right? There's a spreadsheet or there's paying someone tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to do that for me. And so we weren't at the point that we wanted that it made sense to pay someone that much money. And so, yeah, so we sent out to build a solution, a technological solution to solve problems like that for us. So maybe ask, or maybe tell me what some of those questions that you're asking now of GPs that you weren't when you were initially investing. Well, so first of all, there's a terminology aspect to things of like, what is a GP? Or even more important, the industry refers to three different terminologies for the same person. There's an operator, there's a syndicator, and there's a sponsor. And then there's a GP hovering over all of that, right? And what we discovered over time is that these Israelis that we invest with, many of them are just the sort of the, I don't know if they're considered sort of like uh, key partners or, or co-GPs or whatever, but they're just the fundraising. The actual person who's operating the property, who's finding the deals, is a different company. And so that's sort of like when it hit us that whole, like, I don't want to invest with middlemen. I want to invest with the operator. Right? One of the reasons I joined GoBundance, by the way, is because someone recommended, hey, there are a bunch of awesome people in this group that reputation is above all, so they're never going to screw you over. And so like, one of the reasons I joined GoBundance is so I can find people I can trust. right? And so I've invested with two guys in GoBundance over the period of, of being part of it just because of that, because I wanted to reach the operator and not the sponsor or the syndicator. I wanted the operator. Who also raises the cash, right? No. Anyway, so that's like one aspect that, that we learned. Second one is the whole aspect of refinance. So now when I talk with an operator, my, one, of, one of my questions during that intro call is like, all right, what happens in a refinance event? So 
I put 100,000 in, there's supposed to be 7% annual cash distribution. What happens if after a year you return $70,000? Like, what am I getting? And usually, like I say 90% of the time, they don't have an answer for me. Like, they have to go check, which is weird, right? And even the more reputable ones, right? Not, not those that I've invested, because like, I, I get approached on Twitter, on LinkedIn, from different operators because they see that I invest and I talk about like LP investing and stuff like that. And they'll reach out and have a conversation. Then I'll ask them this and then they have to go get back to me. And anyway, it's not that like binary. Everyone has their own structure for, for refining. So that's also another question I ask. And obviously the more like rhetorical ones for like, all right, so what's, what does the waterfall look like? Like how does the distribution period look like? What are you expecting to, you think to hold this for more than five, six years? What's the plan? Those are like the more trivial questions, I guess. Another thing, one, one last thing that I personally, this is only me because I'm a risk taker. I prefer to invest with smaller operators as opposed to bigger ones because the bigger the operator in my sense, the more LPs they have, the more deals they need to they need to come up with, and the more deals you have, it's just like a a large number game, right? Some of them will fail, and when you're a small operator, you really select the deals. I feel like you're hungry to get the best deals, and you're going to go above and beyond to not disappoint your LPs because they're you know all of them by name, and the risk is higher because you don't have as much experience as those big ones. But I prefer to invest with the smaller guys. Even to the extent that the people that I invested with seven years ago have become too big for me. I don't want to invest with them anymore. Yeah, it's, it's just one of those weird things that in the industry, and I see this a lot with contractors as well. Like, you know, you start investing in them as far as a partner uh, with them, as far as growing and helping them grow their organization. And then they get too big. And then it's, you know, inevitably that they're going to maybe have some growing pains uh, experience to that. And, or, Hey, we got so much success that we can open the rain, you know, the aperture of what we could potentially try to do. So I, I totally get that, which is interesting that you brought up and it, it just triggered a memory to me when I first started, you know, doing, you know, as a private equity kind of company, and our attorneys asked a lot of these questions, like how we wanted to structure the fund documents about a refinance. And I was like, you know, what, whatever's like normal standard, like I just want to do what's normal. And, and it was like the fact that you brought it up that everybody does it differently is the truth. Like a refinance, is it paying you back capital and it's going to dilute down your, your return? So you're expecting 7% on a hundred thousand dollars. So you're like, Hey, seven grand a year is coming in. Cool. Well, I just got 70 grand, but now what's remaining, I'm only getting 7% on the, the remaining 30 grand. Wait, wait a minute. That's not what I wanted. Now I got a refund. Maybe that works for your investment thesis. Maybe it doesn't. But again, I've just seen as people start getting more sophisticated in their investing, they don't want the money back. They want it working for them and continuing to work for them because it's it's a lot of work to find new investment deals to go into. Yeah, it's not just that. It's also that in the example you just that you just gave on, on the, the hundred thousand I talked about, not every GP takes a seven percent and puts it on the three thirty thousand remaining capital. Every, like there, I've seen GPs do a different, different calculations say, well, I mean, yeah, I have a higher expenses now because I increased my loan, but I still have excess cash profit that I want to distribute. So it'll be more than 7% on the $30,000. That's what other operators are doing. So anyway, it's, it's just like, 
I don't even know which one is makes more sense because you want to make sure that the GP operator has enough cash to operate and not so sort of get there in situations where it get back to the well, but just everyone does it differently. So that's what I've seen. And I'm new to the game, right? I'm not, I'm, I can't claim that I have a tons of, a ton of experience, but just from my short experience, I've seen it very differently. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Look, two of the most common questions I get asked are, where can I find good deals to invest into? And is it possible to invest alongside of our deals as a passive investor? So my team and I wanted to put together an insider list where you can get first access to investment opportunities, due diligence resources, and best practices for those interested in investing passively into deals like the ones we talk about on the show. Those deals are mostly in the commercial real estate space, but I oftentimes get exclusive access to deals of people like the guests on my show. If those deals pass our criteria, we pass them on to those on the list. To gain access to this insider list, all you have to do is go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. We also host events, dinners, and give away VIP access to events that I'm speaking at or attending. Once again, it's www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. For those that are serious about passive wealth building, we'll see you on the inside. Now, back to the show. There's a couple of things that I want to talk on before we you know, wrap on the show is uh, talk to me which I, I found interesting. So actually I, I went to grad school and, and, and I don't know if you know this, but I got a degree in international real estate and finance. And so like, I've always kind of seen that and in, in really uh, that was in Miami. And so, you know, South Florida is really fantastic at exporting real estate, meaning it's basically just a currency hedge for every, you know, peso of the world or almost currency. And that's why you see oligarchs and, you know, all kinds of, you know, money coming in from South and Central America and really all over the world coming and just buying real estate because maybe they're in a high inflationary environment, Argentina, you know, 20% annual inflation, you know, and so like, you don't want to sit on any cash in Argentina. So you go buy uh, real estate in Miami. And I saw that real time and I was like, wow, currency is a whole nother variable to the deal structure. Like if you're just investing in the States and you're in US dollars and you do the thing and you get a return and it's 15%. So, and really where I'm leading you to is you invested in some stuff with some other currencies, the deal worked out pretty well, but it didn't work out from the, on the currency exchange. So maybe talk through some of those challenges when you're investing, when you have currency aspects uh, layered into the, the variable that maybe people don't think about. Yeah, that, yeah that's a great point because again, I, I won't say I got burnt because I didn't lose money, but I learned a good lesson for me at least. And I'm not, I will not repeat it again, at least not in the near future, which is basically I invested into a development deal in Poland. And because of the Polish girl you you dated in high school or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just because I had a good friend of a good friend who did real estate in Poland, right? And so he's an he's an awesome guy. He did a great job. Like they really did a good job. It was like a year project. On paper, it was like 18, 20% to, to the LPs. But because of, there was a decrease in valuation of the currency, it was like, I didn't do 18, 20%. I did 
seven or eight percent. And I could have kept it in, in Zloty, which was the Polish currency, but I needed the money back back home. And so on paper, I made it, it was a good investment. It was still a good investment, even taking currency into account, but it's like the whole hassle of it wasn't worth it. And so from that point, I just decided I'm just going to invest in, in the main currencies, which is like dollar and euro. And so I have a lot of friends like coming with investments in Central America, in other countries in Europe that aren't in the euro. And I'm like, no, I mean, realist investing is a risky business, right? And each of each has a different risk profile for different reasons. And it's like, I didn't want to add the currency risk on top of that. Because if the shit hits the fan and I'm stuck with euros or dollars, like I can still use it somewhere. I can still fly to Europe or fly to the US and, and use it there, right? Uh, as opposed to any other not core currency in the world. So that's sort of like my experience from, from that. Again, this is very short period of time. I, I assume if I had a longer approach to those types of investment, I probably had the patience to wait till the currency went back up. Um, but again, I don't want to deal with the investments that much. I want to keep it passive. And many of these types of investments t- tend not to be passive. Another aspect on, on that, just like, just like something, something came up, is that I've spoken with a bunch of like LPs like me. And it's always mind-blowing for me when I speak with these people, they have aspirations to become GPs. And the whole, like the... The cool thing about it being a limited partner is that you're passive. You don't have to do anything. Why would you want to do so much stuff afterward? And I get that you can leverage more money and you can make more money, but also you have to, you'll have liability to investors and, and, and you have to work your ass off to find good deals. And like, I don't know, for me, it's like, I want to, and that's like what, what my key motivation is to be passive and generate more wealth. I'd love so. to talk about that a little bit more, that whole financial freedom. I think you kind of just touched on that for a moment as far as like, it was interesting. So, and I don't know if you were on it, but Hyben, uh, Pat Hyben was talking about like, he's primarily an LP investor and he was in this, this, you know, uh, retail, you know, shopping center, grocery anchored shopping center. And he was like, man, wouldn't it be great, you know, with, as a GP, as a sponsor or operator, like, look at all of these 10 different shopping centers that you own. And, uh, you know, look at how you're leveraging, you know, raising money from all these people. Isn't that great? And the the sponsor responded back to him was like, yeah, I got to deal with these phone calls. Like being a a general partner, sponsor of a deal is a active investment. Like you are managing managers, you're managing whatever else, spreadsheets, you know, bank loans, anything related to that property, you're managing that. Whereas he was like, wouldn't it be really nice? The general partner said to the, the limited partner, isn't it pretty nice that you can just invest into something and you don't have to deal with any of those phone calls? Like you actually get to just enjoy the benefits of your money making you money. You're not having to actively kind of uh, make that money in the, in the transaction in that particular deal flow. And so and that's where I think that there's an overarching like the grass is greener on the other side. Like everybody's always thinking like, oh, the, the LP and like I know a lot of GPs that want to be 
LPs because they're like, oh my gosh, it's so much work like to do this. And I got to deal with these investors. I got to deal with the banks. I got to deal with the contractors. I get to deal with the tenants. Like this sucks. All these things kind of suck. And then the LPs that are like, oh, isn't that great that you could be the GP? So talk to me about that because I think there's this disillusionment that one has it greater than the other. And also kind of your overarching kind of like philosophies and thesis on this and that, you know, whatever you want to call that the fire, um, you know, passive retire young or, or however you want to call it. <laughs> I think, I think sort of, yeah, you hit the nail on the head there because I think that what you, what GPs or operators do is an amazing job and they make a ton of money, but it's a job. It's not, it's, it's active. It's not passive. And many people either try to convey it as being passive or see it as being passive. And I don't see it as passive at all. And so when you look at being financially independent or the, the FIRE, which is financial independence, retire early movement, there are two aspects of it that sort of really, I'd say, hurt me to see people talk about them. One aspect of it is sort of the other side of like the not wealthy, the people that sort of like are looking, how do they cut their costs? And if they cut their costs and stop going to restaurants and traveling and doing stuff with kids, and then they're going to reach financial independence. But like, what's the point of reaching financial independence when you don't have, you can't experience anything? Or you see people that are talking about financial independence when they're like 25 years old, but they don't have a family yet. Like, how can you even talk about financial independence when you don't have kids yet? Oh, cool. Yeah, you, you're single. You can travel the world and not, dude, you're not financially independent. Right. You're living in a dream that at that moment you are, but you're going to need, you're going to need to get back to work at some point. So that's one side of the financial independence, which is sort of hard to me to sort of doesn't resonate with me. The second part is the passiveness of the financial independence. So, as I said, if you're a general partner or even if you're a real estate, real estate investor that owns 40 rental properties, you're not financially independent. You're, I mean, maybe you are, but it's not passively. Because right? it's a job to manage that stuff. It's a headache. Like you're going to be on phone calls at the beach with tenants or, or with property managers and managing that stuff. And from where I, the way I see it, and this is just my perspective, right? I'm sure many people do, do not agree with me, but this is from my perspective is that like truly, by the way, even more passive than syndications is just investing in a REIT, right? If you want to expose your real estate, that's a whole different conversation about REITs, which I don't believe in either, just because like, REITs fluctuate based on the markets and not based on the underlying asset, which is just like, what's the point? And that's a different subject, right? So if you're already investing in real estate and you want to be passive, I don't see other, another way to do it other than investing as an LP investor, personally. So I think that's like the best way to reach that financial independence. Obviously, you need enough cash to start with to be able to do that. But that's sort of like my my two cents on passive investing and, and financial independence. So I love that because, and actually that's a little bit of my contrarian advice to people is oftentimes make a lot of money in the job that you're doing. If you're a doctor and you're making a million dollars a year, how do we focus on you making more money in, in your day job so that you can increase your passive investments? Cause really what you're wanting to build is a kind of passive wealth machine. Like you're wanting to build something that you put $1 in and there's a return on it, $1.1 coming out or 1.2 or 1.5 or however that thing is annually so that you're stopping trading time for money. If you're just getting a job and being the GP, you're still trading time for money. 
it may come in lumps and it comes in batches and, you know, there's other things related around to that, but it's, again, it's trading time for money. You're actively pursuing it and there's nothing wrong working. I enjoy working. I think we are all designed to work and to do and to challenge and create new things. What happens is that, like you just said, living on a beach, sipping my ties for the rest of my life is Fortunately, I experienced having a lot of money and then saw it all go away. And I was like, I'm actually the worst version of myself when I'm not working. I enjoy working, but I like the freedom around of the aspect of the times to work when I want to work, go to the meetings I want to go to meetings. And it's not going to be 100% I don't get to do, I get to do only the things that I want. There are still negatives to that. So I want to discuss like what you're doing with your startup now that helps people be a little bit more maybe passive in their passive investments or more organized. Maybe that's a better way of saying it as far as what your company is doing now. Um, and then actually I'm going to give you and, and close that out with a, a few more things that uh, some interesting ways that I'm evolving my own thought process around what you're doing and then to even the next 2.0 version of it. Yeah. Sounds great. Yeah. So so like I said, so we really believe in being passive investors, right? And so when we're invested in these funds and this real estate private equity stuff, and then you, you get these like ongoing emails every quarter or every other month or at the end of the year and then tax filing and multiple entities. And it's not my day job. It's not my job to manage my money and I don't want to actively do it. So we built this company in order to add more passiveness to those types of investments so that if I had a family office, for example, if I was worth tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars, I'd have a family office or a multifamily office. And every time I receive something, I just throw it at them and they'll just, they'll just take care of it for me, right? That's, that's like the passiveness that I envision, right? And so they'll tell me if things are going well, they'll tell me if there's a capital call coming up, they'll tell me, hey, there was a distribution, this fund is doing bad, this fund is doing, is doing good, there's money coming back. So that's like, what a family office would have done if I had one. And that's sort of like the premise of what we're building now, only virtually. So we're building this platform, which automates as much as that process as possible. So that when I receive these investments, I just, or these documents or these emails, I'll just throw them into the platform and then the platform will analyze it and then update an asset. Or if I have a distribution come in, then I'll link in my bank accounts and then the platform will identify uh, transactions and notify me how I'm doing from a performance standpoint. Or if there's a liquidation event coming up, then Visor, the platform itself, will sort of raise a flag. Hey, there's a there's a there's a liquidation event coming up in two months. Here's what people like you did with that type of money when that when it came back, and then show me like what people like me are investing in, anonymously of course, or which funds people are investing in, and ranking those funds based on the actual investments that people have invested in anonymously, but based on actual investment. So, and then obviously adding in everything else to your mix, like all your public market holdings, your crypto, your, your cars, your home, your boats, whatever, just having everything in one place and managing it for you without, without any conflict of interest. Cause we do not manage any money actively. We have no incentive to convince anyone or us to, to do anything with our money. Just make sure that everything is streamlined, maintaining that passiveness and being super transparent about it. I love that because then that's, you know, what I was kind of talking about is a digital family office, a virtual family office. And then that 2.0 version of it is what happens is you're at the hub, 
trying to manage all of these other things. And when you start designing that hub of what you're trying to do, and I say this is, you know, maybe because we're, you know, similar in age and, and you know, uh, we're still in growth stage. Like we're not trying to completely diversify down into like nothingness as we're protecting our wealth. Like we're still wanting to grow. Like I am being more aggressive with my investments. I'm aggressive in my active day job. And so it's like, no, I'm still growing, growing, growing. And so like, when you look at that is that center hub of what you've taken as the technology that disseminates documents and paperwork, you know, you know, not necessarily admin, but it's, you know, still higher level, but then also, Hey, you should have a liquidity in three years. You input it into a deal. You invest into a new deal. You put a hundred grand in. Here's what the expectations are. I've seen a little bit of your walkthrough. Like you have this dashboard of now you kind of start understanding where's all my money going and banks and, you know, funds. And now I've seen some other people that have started leveraging that is How's that also talking to your insurance? How's that talking to your real estate? How is that talking to your, so you have liquidity in one position, you know, do you have to adjust your insurance? Does that adjust your expenses? Are you carrying umbrella policies? Are you color covering other things? And so you kind of have this ever evolving nebulous and then you have taxes sometimes. What does that affect your tax income? You and obviously you're doing stuff internationally. Are you filing all of those? Like who's paying attention to that? And so, like you said, family offices already do this. Billionaires do this. Like they have 50 CPAs in their office that's handling this and they don't deal with the paperwork. But then how can you use and leverage technology to scale this down to somebody that's got a million bucks? Now, I don't know what the actual number is. Well, I mean, we add in a lot of technology. The expectations from someone who has a million dollars is not the same as the expectations that someone has a billion dollars. And the complexity of their finances isn't the same. I'd say the sweet spot of people that are using Advisor at the moment is around six, seven million dollars. But we have people with a few hundred thousands and we have people with, a, with many tens of thousands, tens of millions. So, I mean, it's pretty diversified. But I think that because we're adding a lot of technology and because there's so much you can do from technology, but like there's no in incentive to do so in the bigger in these bigger family offices because hey, there's money you need to pay it, and there's a team that'll process it for you. So you can do a lot with tech to automate many of those processes. And you mentioned a lot of different aspects that we're not tackling yet. So like we're not tackling the tax aspect yet because that is super complicated because that is a lot of liability from our side that we don't want to get into yet. But we will give we will enable sort of. We enable users within the platform to give access to their CPAs or export their data to the CPAs. So the CPA can then sort of like see their information because they're already working with a, a, a CPA, right? Like all of us have their own CPAs that we use in the file taxes because our com our finances are are too complex, turbo, turbo tax and the equivalents aren't aren't sufficient for people like us, right? And so you already have a CPA, just give them access to Visor and then he can help you with the taxes. But usually CPAs, from my experience, won't help you with deciding if to invest in this fund in syndication or that fund or understanding, oh, this performed more than you expected or let you know if there are capital calls coming up. So they don't do that type of stuff, right? You'll, you're going to have to, you'll pay an admin or a bookkeeper to do that for you. And that, that costs a lot of money, right? And, and it's, it's not necessarily worth it in my mind. No, that's, I mean, obviously I think you're very pioneering in this space and it's like, I see so many possibilities. Data, data analytics, what you're talking about is seeing where kind of the flow of capital is going. 
you know, seeing, and obviously being part of mastermind groups and other people, you know, higher net worth groups and tiger 21 and, and these things It's like, normally you're just having conversations. Maybe that was, you shared at the country club, then it became some of these masterminds. Now it's people that are very specifically uh, looking at it, but data has its own footprint. Where are people moving their capital to? Where are they placing it? So that's, I mean, I am incredibly fascinating because can you then start picking up trends and opportunities to maybe leverage, you know, uh, a fundamental shift in the way that people are looking at things and group thinking, you know, obviously there's a whole lot of Reddit and, you know, AMC and GameStop short squeezes and all kinds of other things that people can do when they leverage technology as a group thing and become <laughs> almost like quasi hedge funds. But, uh, you know, we'll maybe leave that to, to another conversation. Yeah, but when, but when you look at the even in, only in the U.S., there are about fifty thousand operators, like real estate private equity firms, like from small ten LPs to thousand LP funds, right? And and how do you even know which ones are the good guys, which are the good ones, and which are the bad ones? It's because it's all it's because these are private placements. They're not the Black Rocks and and the KKRs of the world, right? They're smaller. It's it's almost impossible to vet them, and it's all word of mouth, and so. Like I said before, when you talk with these people, they're going to give you references to people that have invested with them. But how do you know that the references they give you are, are people that were in bad deals, probably just ones that were in good deals? And so there's no real way. And that's why people like, like that. That's why people like me join these mastermind groups to find people I can trust. But if I had a platform which transparently showed me which funds people are investing in, and then honestly chat with people that have invested in these funds and see the actual performance of these funds. That's freaking mind blowing and it can bring so much value. Obviously, many of the funds won't like that, right? But that's why we're focused on bringing value to the LPs. And the funny thing is, I've seen, I've spoken with a bunch of GPs, especially the more emerging fund managers, like the, the newer ones. And they're like, we love what you're doing. And we want, we want our LPs to use Visor because when you raise sort of the switch on that, I want to already have a track record so that other LPs will hear about me. And talk with people within Visor about my performance because I'm cool with that, and and so yeah, that is that is a 2.0, and there's so many things we can build on top of that, right? So we're super excited. Well, it goes back to your you know diamond industry that when you're out there uh, capturing it and it says it's it's you know powered by what was it sit I don't remember the name of the company Siggo. Sigoma. 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 Uh, you know, and obviously people start using. Your, your new company advisor be like, no, we want you to utilize this platform so that we can see some of those levels of transparency. Dude, massively disrupting, uh, you know, old school uh, financial storages of wealth, private securities, diamond industries. Uh, I have a few questions that I wanted to ask you uh, before as we're wrapping up the show. This has been incredibly fascinating for me. I a little bit prepped you for this, but I wanted to ask the question of like, what is one thing that you have done spending money or investing that has given you more freedom and you can't say your own company? Yeah, no, for sure. So I think it's sort of a sort of a methodology at life. And it's it, it might sound very mundane, but sort of my wife and I have these conversations about like the day-to-day -day operation of our house. And because I'm an entrepreneur, I have enough stress as is. And it's like anything that we can do to pay someone to do for us. And the, the only, like the best example that comes to mind now, and it's, it might sound stupid, but it is freedom for me. It's like, unfortunately my dog got ran over about four months ago 
and something like her leg was completely broken. And for, for the past four months, she needed to be taken to a vet, a vet hospital like 30 minutes away once a week. And at the beginning, I took her. And then I said, I don't want to do this anymore. I have better things to do with my time. Let's find someone, pay them to drive the dog to the place, to do all the coordination, to deal with it. I don't want to deal with it. I want to save the dog, but I'm not going to drive her anymore back and forth. And so for the past four months, we've been paying someone every week to drive the dog to the hospital and back. And that, again, it might sound stupid, but that is like, that's like the essence of like, if I can pay for something to free my time and not be stressed out, I'll do it. Especially when it's like, it's not tens of thousands of dollars. It's a few hundred bucks. So it's, it's worth it to spare my time. Right. So that's sort of like one of the examples that comes to mind when I think about sort of like that freedom. I love that. That's a great, great example. I pay people to pick up dog poop in my yard. <laughs> you know, I was like, I don't want to do it. <laughs> and I do it. You know, I was like, and uh, so, yeah. Uh, again, if, yeah. You know, you make enough money on an hourly basis, anything below that hourly wage, you know, and if you're, you know, picking up the dog poop, then you're the dog poop person. Like, and so then you just have to, you know, be disciplined enough to stick to your kind of pay grade on stuff, uh, on deals. I'd like to ask you as far as, you know, any kind of books or maybe it's podcasts or or things that you've shared out there, but uh, maybe two books that you have gifted most or have been the most impactful for you that you've given to other people, maybe more so than another book uh, or a podcast or shared with other things. And and tell me why that has been impactful. How has it impacted you? Yeah. So, I mean, there's one book that I always recommend because the only book I listen to books on audible. Right. Um, And so it's the only book that I finished and immediately after finishing it, I started immediately listening to it again. And it's never split the difference by Chris Voss. It's written very well, super interesting. And it talks about the, the important skill of negotiation, right? And it's Chris Voss. If, if you, if I don't know if the listeners don't know him, he's, he led sort of like global negotiations for the FBI and He's been in situation. It, it's funny though, because there's like a seemingly no connection between like negotiating with terrorists and and other things in life, but there's so many similarities there, and and it's something that sort of I implement in my day to day, even with my kids, but also at work and raising money from investors. It's like you're constantly in negotiation mode. Anything you do in life is around negotiating, and. After I read the book, it's like it, it sort of hit me that that's a situation, right? Like everything is a negotiation. And so that's like if I have to recommend one book, that would be the book I'd recommend. And then there are other books. I guess the next one that comes to mind is a more hardcore book. It's called Thinking Fast and Thinking uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by uh, uh, Kahneman. And well, no, not Kahneman. Kahneman wrote, to, yeah, I think Daniel Kahneman. Is it Kahneman and and Amos? Um... Chavorsky yeah. or something like that. Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's sort of more like more about more psychological aspects, like behavioral economics, a lot more hardcore. So like understanding like what motivates people to do things. And it's one of those books that is quoted in almost any other business book in the market. Like you have your brain is divided into system one and system two. And like system one is more like the 
intuitive one, the, the emotional one, system two is more the analytical part of it. And then everything is motivated from those two systems and every decision you make in life. Anyway, it's a hard book to listen and read, but it's super interesting because every a lot of, I think he, he got a Nobel Prize for it. Um, so anyway, yeah, so those are the two books that I recommend if I had to recommend books. I appreciate that. Leeton, where, where can people reach out to you? And, and what is the final ask of anybody in the audience out there as far as if it's deals, it's opportunities, you know, anything like that, you know, how can they reach out to you and find you in the world and what can they bring you uh, to help add some value to you? So I think, I think, I mean, any LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, email, I'm sure all the information I'm happy to talk. I love speaking with other people like me. So like people that are LPs like me, there's one thing that sort of, if you're in the military, so in Israel, so the equivalent is that in Israel, everyone who goes into the military, after they get discharged, they do reserves, reserve duty for, they're like 40, 42. And so for me, I feel like whenever I've dealt with situations and I feel that I've had experience that I'd love to help others with, it's like a reserve duty for me. It's like, I want to give back and learn. And I have a lot to learn, right? So learning from either people that have more experience from me or people that have less experience and want and love to help them. That'd be great as well. So, and I'm super passionate about real estate and syndication investing. And it's like one of those things that I think everyone should be doing. So that's sort of like how I'd open that up if anyone wants to talk about that. That's awesome. I agree with everybody should be doing those things, uh, you know, <laughs> preaching to the choirs, Speak it up. So uh, again, this has been a fantastic episode. I've really enjoyed the conversations and, and I feel like, you know, maybe we'll have to do a, a part two kind of update as your uh, next startup continues to, to develop and, you know, you launch the 2.0 and maybe we can get an update on that in, you know, six months or a year or whenever that kind of next version out is. I appreciate you. I'm super grateful for you taking time out of your day. And I know it's late there in Israel and you got young kids and uh, I know you're probably not sleeping much because of those young kids, but uh, try to get to, to bed. I appreciate your time, Liton, very, very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was awesome speaking with you. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives or me personally at Jake.realestate. For those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.